Mind praying with me this morning? Dear Lord, what a powerful truth. We take all of our dirt and grime, bring it to you, not just one time at the cross, but even as Christians, followers of Christ, we still make bad decisions. We still self-destruct. We still wallow in the dirt of our sin. And I'm so grateful that at any time and every time, we come back to you again, broken, having broken ourselves. You take the pieces and you put us back together again. You take the sin that we have played with over the week and you wash us clean from it. I am truly grateful that my salvation does not depend on me, but I'm also grateful that in my salvation, I can depend on you. Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving your people. I pray now our hearts would be open to what your word has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The title of this morning's message is Delivered from Distress. Now, this message may not go the direction you're thinking by looking at the title. I'm going to give you a heads up. God does not promise to deliver us from our distress now. God does not guarantee that you will be delivered from your distress tomorrow. Nowhere in God's word does it guarantee that with the next two or three, four years, by the time you're 40, 50, or 60, all distress will be eliminated from your life. <laughs> there is one guarantee for the believer. Well, one guarantee as far as the elimination of distress. God guarantees to be with you through the distress. We'll talk about that today. But the only guarantee to be delivered from it <laughs> is when you die. In heaven, there will be no more distress. In heaven, eternal life is not just an eternal living, continuing as we always have in our current state. I can tell you right now, if eternity was more of this, I would not be nearly as interested. I am so grateful that eternity is more of better. Without the distress, God will deliver us from this current distress. Now, in my life, I've experienced ebbs and flows, highs and lows, ins and outs, in distress, out of distress, way high, doing really well, really low, not so well. Distress coming and going. I've experienced that in my life, but I'm so grateful that, at least for me, God has not left me in a constant state of distress. That doesn't mean God loves me more than others. It doesn't mean that I'm better than others. I will tell you this. I honestly believe this. This is my opinion. That if God is allowing you to be in a constant state of distress that is not due to your own bad choices, because we got to be honest, sometimes our distress is self-inflicted. But if God has imparted on you a life of distress and he has not put me in that position, I would not claim to be the better man. <laughs> I would not claim to be the stronger of the two. I would have to say honestly... God must think much of you. God must think more of you, at least your abilities, your maturity, more of your strength than he does of mine. Because, guys, I obviously can't handle it because he hasn't put me in it. Now, I'm not saying I'm jealous. 
because I'm not. I'm not envious, but I do recognize you're not a lesser Christian because you go through more. God must think much of you. If your physical condition causes constant constant distress, God must think highly of you. When I look in the Bible, I see in the Old and New Testament people who went through long bouts of distress. And you notice the ones that God allows to go through distress, not self-inflicted, but allows them to go through it, are some of the godliest people in the Bible. Job, the Bible tells us, who was a just man. David, much of his distress was self-inflicted, much of it was not. But David had prolonged distress, a man after God's own heart. And the New Testament, of course, Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, a life of distress. At least the, the part that we know about, distress. The Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter, distress. I would never dare compare myself to anyone, but especially not to these people. I don't want to come out discouraged after that comparison. But I do see that the closer you are to God does not guarantee the lower stress level. (laughs) It seems to be the opposite. It seems to me, as I read Scripture, as I see my own life, as I look at other people's life, again, eliminating the self-inflicted distress, it seems to me that distress that God allows in our life increases as we draw closer to him. And you say, well, Pastor Russ, that doesn't encourage me to draw closer to God. I understand that. And today's text will give you the reason why you should be willing to allow that in your life. But I want to start with this. We are, as a school, trying to constantly expand what we provide to our student body and their families. And so starting tomorrow, we are doing for the very first time cross-country. And so our students who want to sign up from 4th through 12th grade sign up, and they're going to practice, and there's going to be five cross-country runs or competitions. Now, for five runs, our students will be running four days a week from tomorrow till May just to compete five times. They are practicing a whole lot more than they are competing the amount of time they will spend in practice, the amount of miles they will run in practice will be significantly more than the competition run. Why? Why not just show up at the run and just run the one, two, or three miles depending on their age? Why run the tens, the twenties, literally the hundreds of miles to run essentially one, two, or three, five times? Why? Because in practice, it doesn't matter as much. When you're competing, it matters. Athletes understand something. If you show up at the moment of competition, not having already been through the pain and increased your endurance to withstand the pain, you won't be on a level to compete successfully. You're going to lose. Something Christians fail to remember. And sometimes we go through pain Sometimes we go through suffering. Sometimes we go through distress, and we say, God, really? Like, it doesn't even matter. I can't see any benefit from the current distress in my life. No one is going to be a better person because of the distress I went through, including myself. God, what's the point? And God just keeps trying to remind us, no, I get that. This is practice. 
You're just going through practice right now. You're right. It doesn't matter on, on a large scale. That's in the future. But if you want to be ready for what's coming in the future, you've got to practice today. Well, that's no fun. Who said practice was fun? Especially if you're a runner. Now, I understand there are some who think running crazy. I think that they need to see a psychologist because something's wrong with them. If they think running is fun. Running for me has never been fun. I only ran when I was forced to or I had to. I, I didn't run because I enjoyed it. I might have enjoyed the results, right? Who doesn't enjoy the results? I don't enjoy the process. Christian, you don't have to enjoy the process. No one is forcing you to. Well, God's word says, uh, be joyful in all things and to praise him in all things. Let me, let me rephrase that and explain it a better way. Be joyful through all things is really what that text means. It doesn't mean be thankful that God is, is causing you to be in pain. Be thankful through the pain. Don't be joyful that God t- allowed a loved one in your life to die and to pass from this earth before their time. Don't, oh, dear Lord, thank you that my loved one died. No, be joyful through the loss of a loved one. You don't have to be happy about everything, but you can recognize God has never left you through anything. Christian, much of the pain we suffer, much of the anxiety and the distress is just preparation for what really matters. And that should scare you. It scares me. Sometimes I look at the distress and I recognize there's not really any big thing going on right now. Like the distress I'm going through, the anxiety, you know, this day last week, like there was nothing major. So God is obviously putting me through practice. And if this is how I feel now, and it's just practice, what's it going to feel like when it really matters? Well, what will it feel like when it really matters if I haven't practiced? That's the real question. See, if I take a bunch of teenagers and bring them to uh, a competition and a run against those who have practiced, it's going to be embarrassing if they don't practice themselves. And a lot of Christians are just embarrassing themselves, embarrassing God, embarrassing his kingdom, embarrassing his church, because they refuse to practice. And when it really matters, when big decisions have to be made, and the stress of those decisions start to wear on your shoulders, and you recognize we got to do this, but it's going to be hard, and you give up, and you run away, and you turn away, when it really matters, it's embarrassing. But you know what else? It's hurtful. It hurts you, it hurts your loved ones, it hurts God's kingdom. When you run, when it really matters. God may or may not deliver you from distress now. He will deliver you from distress when we go to heaven. But stop seeing distress as your enemy and start recognizing often it is just training you for when something really matters comes your way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. I'm going to clarify that word there, and I'll do that in a short time. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest or showed or illustrated, evidenced in our body. I want you to jump now down to number 13. We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, meaning 
The Apostle Paul saying, my faith is not in some new religion I made up. He said, my faith is in what has been written. I believed in what was written, what was given to me by God. That I trusted in. Not my own heart, not my own thoughts, not my own logics. I believed in the truth that God gave me. We also believe and therefore speak. Verse number 15, for all things are for your sakes. And there's the reason right there. They say, Pastor Russ, why would I want to practice going through distress and trouble and suffering now for when it really matters? It's hard enough now. Why would I want it to really to be harder when it matters? Because you're always thinking about, we always think about ourselves. It doesn't always really matter just for you. It matters for your kids. It matters for your spouse. It matters for your friends. And do you want to be able to stand up, stand tall, stand strong when it really matters for your family? Or do you want to be on the ground when it really matters for your family? Do you want to stand tall when it really matters to your church, or do you want to be on the ground when it really matters to your church? Do you want to stand strong when it really matters for God's kingdom, or do you want to be on the ground when it really matters for God's kingdom? You see, you say, I'm not sure I want to suffer more, especially if it's going to be worse when it really matters, but how much do you love others God's placed in your life? Now, is that a good reason to suffer? It is for me. And it was for Paul. He says in verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. Most of my suffering, the apostle Paul says, is because of you guys and for you guys. That the abundance of grace might through the thanksgiving of many rebound, redound, excuse me, redound to the glory of God. That as I suffer for your sakes and as you benefit from my suffering, the grace God gives me through my suffering and the grace God gives you through my suffering, your thankfulness will bring glory to God. And as God is glorified and as God is lifted up, his kingdom broadens. The more God is glorified, the more people see God, and the more people see God, the more people often come to God. And the Apostle Paul said, if my suffering is part of that process, I accept that. Verse 16, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. The Apostle Paul says, what I'm living for, God, his kingdom, your uh, success, your maturity, God's glory. He says, those things, not only will I live for, I will suffer for, and if necessary, I will die for. Paul was a motivated man, and Paul's motivation was God. There's some motivated people in this room. My question is not, are you motivated today? My question is, what motivates you? Because sometimes we're motivated for family, and that is our singular, strongest motivation. You know, it's a shame when you see someone whose whole life is centered around and motivated by family when their family is gone for whatever reason. The relationship is cut off. Maybe they pass from this life into the next. The family's gone. They lost their motivation. They're an empty shell. What a shame. Some people, their motivation is money. Their motivation is their job. And when they're fired and that money is gone, they're no longer the same person. Some people, their motivation is themselves. What a self-destructive way to live your life. But when your motivation is God, you will find yourself accomplishing things you never thought possible. Because through the power of God, nothing is impossible. I see three points this morning delivered from distress the Christian's hope, the Christian's death, and the Christian's sacrifice. Let's look at, back at verses 8 through 9. Now, I told you that verse 8, it says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. 
That word distress obviously is a word we use today, but this this particular word had a, had a variety of meanings, you know, four or five hundred years ago, which is when it was translated into English. And that word distressed meant trapped. Now, today, the word distressed often is referring to the anxiety we feel, the stress we feel, the burden, the heavy weight. Oh, it's distressing upon me. But that word in, in this text means trapped. In fact, these verses 8 and 9 are referring to someone who's kind of in a, in a wrestling competition or in a fight with someone else. And the Apostle Paul often used athletics, whether it was running or boxing or wrestling. He used it many times. And he says if you want to win the race, you got to play by the rules and you got to get to the end. Right? If you break the rules and you don't get to the end, then you won't get the crown. And so here he's using an illustration and using words that would be used in the context of wrestling or fighting or, or athleticism. And that word distress means trapped. So you're, you're put in, a, in some kind of hold, wrestling hold, or you're, you're put in some kind of situation. You say, oh, man, I can't get out of this. I can't move forward. And yet I want to remind you as Christians, you are not trapped. The Bible says right here in verse 8, we are troubled. We have problems in our life. There are things that concern us. There are people that attack us, but they cannot trap us. You will never as a Christian be in a room without doors. You will never be in a room with the door that's locked. If you are in a room, it's because you choose to be in that room because that door has been opened and unlocked by Christ your Savior. If you want to remain in that room of trouble, that is your decision. You say, well, Pastor Russ, I don't want to remain in this room. I want to get out. All right, fair enough. God may not allow you to get out yet. Maybe God says, hey, the door's open, but I want you to practice in this room. There's some things you need to learn in this room. You're not trapped in this room. It's not indefinite, but I want you to grow in this room. So we go to the next room, you'll be ready for what's next. Oh, now it's scary. God, what's in the next room? <laughs> if this room is preparing me for that room, I don't think I want to leave this room anymore. The truth is, Christian, we're not trapped. We're not trapped in our sin. We're not trapped by humanity. We're not trapped by the world. The world cannot put you in a chokehold that you cannot get out of. You're not distressed. I see letter B. You're not helpless. Verse 8, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Perplexed has that idea of I'm really not sure where to go from here. Like, I'm confused. Perplexed implies confusion. And sometimes Christians are confused. Sometimes we really don't know what God has next. Sometimes we look at the politics going on around us, both uh, nationally and abroad, internationally, and we are truly confused. Like, God, what are you doing? Where are you, God? And, and even on a, a much smaller level, we look at our bank account, and we look at our kids, and we look at our spouse, and we look in the mirror and say, what are you doing, God? Like, I have no clue what you have for us tomorrow. I am perplexed. I am confused. But confusion does not require, verse 8, despair. We're not helpless. We're not hopeless. Even though we are confused and even though we cannot see the immediate future for our life, this church, this country, and this world, and it bothers us and we are perplexed, we are not hopeless, we are not helpless, God has a plan, and although we may be confused about it, we can know a plan exists. And we can trust the planner. And praise the Lord, it's not me. I'm not the planner for Meriden Hills Baptist Church, and neither are you. We will go where God takes us. I will not drag you kicking and screaming. And don't worry, you won't have to drag me. 
we will follow the planner. And I got to be honest with you, last year or two, I have been a little confused. I look at our school, I see it growing, I see God doing things, and I think, I'm turning families away, I'm closing classes, our enrollment is maxed in, in multiple levels, and I'm a little confused, thinking, God, it doesn't seem that you would want a ministry to thrive only to be capped. God, it doesn't seem you'd want to bring people here who love children and love teaching children to reach a community only to turn the community away. God, I'm a little confused. I'm a little perplexed. But God, I'm not hopeless. I'm not without hope. And God, I'm not helpless because I got you. You see, it is okay to be confused. And that's when you need more faith. <laughs> and I have been confused. But I've got to tell you, I know God has a plan. And in time, my confusion will be cleared away. <laughs> and so I'm just going to follow him until he takes away the confusion. We're going to follow him, church, until God shows us this is where I wanted you all along. And then we will say, oh, yeah, all right. And let me tell you, Christians, at 38, that has happened to me so many times, I'm no longer overly concerned. Confused, yes. Concerned, no. Because God has cleared my confusion so many times, I know he will get us where he wants us to be. As a church, as a family, as a follower. Letter C in verse 9 Persecuted but not forsaken. Christian, this is a great one. You are not alone. God will allow you to go through distress, to be bothered, to be troubled. God will, God will allow you to grow, go through growing moments. But God will never leave you nor forsake you through them. You are not alone. He will not forsake you. When God takes away that person from your life, maybe they moved, maybe they passed, Maybe they turned their back on you for a time and said, I never want to talk to you again. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. When, may, when God takes that person away from you and, and you just feel overwhelmed, God says you're not alone. But specifically in verse 9, this feeling of being overwhelmed is, is related to persecution, meaning things that happen to us because we serve God. Have you gone through that? Have there been people in your life who've left you because you serve God? Have you lost friends because you served God? Have you lost family members because you go to church and you serve God? Have you lost positions of authority, opportunities, money, jobs because you serve God? I've known teenagers who've lost jobs because they weren't willing to work on Sunday. But they made a choice and they said, God's more important to me than a job. And God provided another job. We will be persecuted, Christian. I'm not going to tell you it won't happen. But I will tell you this. You will have the presence of God with you through it all. Letter D in verse 9. You are not defeated. Cast down, but not destroyed. Again, this idea of the, the wrestler and how he may throw you down and keep throwing you down, and you keep getting knocked down, but he will not keep you down. That word destroyed means you're not getting back up, right? You're going to be on the ground. It's over. Game over, man. You're done. God said, not for the Christian. There is no game over for the Christian, even in death. It's not game over. It's, oh, I get another life. How cool is that? You know, new game. Bonus round, right? We're in eternity now. It's never game over for the Christian, ever. God already beat the game. We're just playing through it now. In the match against a bigger foe, we will get knocked down. Not may, will get knocked down. But we're not destroyed. 
God said the gates of hell cannot prevent the church from moving forward. And you are the church, and I am the church. We will not be destroyed. You may feel like your life is falling apart. You may feel defeated. Your feelings are lying to you because if you're alive, then you have victory in Christ. You may not be claiming it, but it's there for you. So claim the victory and recognize victory doesn't mean your enemies flee. Victory just means your enemies are fighting a losing battle. And you're fighting, but you're fighting a winning battle. The victory is yours. The Christian's hope. Let's see number two, the Christian's death. Because I did tell you that this, this idea of delivered from distress, delivered from trouble, delivered from suffering and trials, although through the suffering, through the persecution, through the distress, we're not trapped, we're not helpless, we're not alone, we're not defeated, we will still experience trouble, anxiety, depression, discouragement, distress. The heavy burdens of this life, we will still deal with those. Until the day God says, welcome home, well done, good and faithful servant. It's ironic to me that the Christian would want to live more in this world. The only reason I can think that I'd want to live more for this world, there's only two. I love God and I love you guys. That's it. There, I don't love this life. Honestly, guys, I don't even love who I am. I'm not, I'm not self-doubting or, or trying to beat myself up. I'm just, I'm just saying, there's nothing about me that I'm overly attached to, that like I can't let go and go to heaven, okay? There's nothing about who I am, what I've accomplished, where I'm like, oh, no, God, please let me have this a little longer. No, it's the people. I love God, and I want to serve him. I love my family. I love this church. You guys and my family, that's the reason I'd want to stay here longer, for your sake. But if it wasn't for my family, if it wasn't for people, there's nothing on this earth that I'm attached to. I'd much rather be in heaven with God. And it's ironic to me that Christians have something on this earth that is more important than God, aside from what I just told you, you know, the desire to, to benefit and help others succeed. That I get. But the possessions, the things, the stuff, like, you must not know heaven very well. You're not reading scripture to understand that what is here pales in comparison to what is there. And I want to be there. Letter A, in verse 10, we're told, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You know what Christ said to his followers? He said, pick up my cross and follow me. You know what the Apostle Paul said to the church? He said, I die daily. That word, I die daily, that phrase implies that he's, he is placing himself on the altar. He sacrifices himself daily to the cause of Christ, knowing that's going to get painful on that altar. I mean, there's, there's this fire going on there. If I step on that thing, it's going to be hot. I will not enjoy that. I'm not getting on the altar because of what I get out of it. I'm getting on the altar because of what I can give through it. And the Apostle Paul lived his life saying, every day I get back on the altar and say, what can I give God today even if it hurts? And so many Christians are saying, ah, 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 it hurts, it hurts, God. And they're not even on the altar. Like the, the heat wave from the altar, they're a foot away, and they start running the other way. Didn't even get on it. And you wonder, why doesn't God use me? Because you keep running from the altar. You keep running from the pain. You say, well, Pastor Russ, I wish I could handle the pain better. Well, then go through the practice. 
And stop running from the practice. You say, well, the practice doesn't matter. It does matter because it prepares you for what really matters, the altar. I look at the Apostle Paul, and what I see in his life is he went from practicing to pretty much every day was game day. Like professional level, right? NBA, where you're playing games multiple times a week. As opposed to elementary, it's one game a week, even high school, one or two games a week, and, and more practices than games. The Apostle Paul, man, it was more games than practice. Where do you want to be as Christian? Do you want your life to be full of practices so that you can have five games in your entire life? Or do you want to have game day every day? Every day you're doing something that matters. Every day you're doing something that impacts. Every day. Then you got to get on that altar. you got to die daily like the Apostle Paul. And you got to say, it's not about me. It's about those that God has placed in my life. Letter A, Christians should not fear what God has already conquered. Verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I'm willing to die daily. Verse 11, for we which live are always delivered unto death. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said, if we're alive God, and if we're, if we're being used by God and serving God, he says, at least for me, in verse 11, he says, every day I'm delivered into a state of death. Every day is like dying all over again. But he says, you know what? Death doesn't scare me. Why doesn't death scare him? Verse 11, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. He says, I'm not scared of, of dying daily because inside I'm alive like I've never been before. You see, the Apostle Paul is not saying I die inside daily, like the, the inside of me, my soul, my, you know, what really makes me tick and my motivations. You know, that's shrinking and dying. He says, no, that's growing and living. He says, the outside, that's suffering. It's my mortal flesh. It's my body. It, it's, the, it's the relationships that, that hurt. But he says, the inside where God is, the inside that, that, that God is renewed, that's alive. And then in verse 12, so then death worketh in us, but life in you. And that's what we got to earlier, is that the Apostle Paul's motivation was saying, I'll die daily so that you can have life. God allows Christians to decide. And he says, will you die for me? I've conquered death, and someday you will actually die, right? Someday you will pass from this life into the next, verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you, verse 14, knowing that someday we will die from this earth, literally passing into the next life. Does that scare you? Because God has already conquered death. And death for you is not the end. Death for you as the believer and death for me as a believer is just an open door to eternity. And if death is not the end, then why would you be concerned about dying daily? Death to yourself. Death to your own hopes and dreams and say, God, forget my hopes and dreams. What are your hopes and dreams? I want those. I want to live your hopes and dreams because yours will make a much bigger impact than mine. Letter B, the Christian faces death that others may receive eternal life. Verse 12, so then death worketh in us but life in you. Why do we face death? Why do we go through trouble, 
difficulties, trials, distress, anxiety? Why do we uh, go through problems when we could run from the problems? Because when you run from the problems, almost every time you are leaving behind the helpless. Parent, when you run from the problems, it's your kids who will suffer. You are now leaving the problems behind for your children to deal with. And you know that because that's exactly what happened to many of you in this room. Your parents ran from problems. And you grew up with those problems. And many in this room are now carrying the problems of your own life. And unfortunately for you, the problems that were left behind by your parents that were never dealt with. And some of you still haven't worked through those problems that were left on your shoulders at age 6. 8, 12, 14. They are still sitting on your shoulders. And boy, are they heavy. My advice to you is stop ignoring them. Bring them to God and recognize the damage that is done when an adult runs from problems. It's the kids who suffer most. Face your problems and recognize your kids will have their own problems. Don't leave yours for them. Set your children up for success. Don't protect them from the problems in their life because they need to know how to work through those. But don't add to the problems in their life. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us, right? Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, adding to the problems they've already got. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We face problems. We face death. We face anxiety. We face distress. We don't run from them. We face it so we can grow through it and not leave it behind for our kids, for our spouse, for our church family, for those new believers who haven't grown and matured enough to handle the level of problems we've got. Breaks my heart when a church has been around and they, on their sign, 1940, 1950, and there's members in that church that have been there for 30, 40, 50 years. Breaks my heart that they would reach the community and that people would come in and get saved, and these new believers are so excited to serve God and they walk into a church full of decades-old problems. And these members don't face the problems. They just keep throwing them at each other. And it is those who have been saved for 20, 30 years that should be taking the problems, confronting the problems, giving them to God, working through them and growing through them so that the new believer who just got saved last month doesn't have to. They're not ready yet. And yet these supposedly mature believers in the faith, throw the problems at each other so much it splits the church, and the new believer says, what just happened? I didn't even know a church split was a thing. Like, they had to learn through experience what a church split is. They didn't know churches split. They didn't know Christians yelled and screamed and swore at each other in business meetings. I'm not saying you guys do here. You don't. But there are churches where they do. They didn't know Christians would try to win you over to their side. And they thought, wait a second, there's a side in this church? Aren't we all on God's side? No, there's this side and that side. Which side are you choosing? And they didn't know there were sides. Because Christians don't want to grow through their problems. They want to throw them at someone else. And it is usually the weakest that suffer the most. Those weak in the faith. Letter C. A bold faith is evidenced through a courageous life. Verse 13, we, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, 
I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believed and therefore speak. Verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. If we have faith in Christ, we shouldn't just believe it, verse 13, but believe and speak it. And we also see in verse 11, not just believe and speak it, but verse 11, that life of Christ, the life also of Jesus, might be made manifest or shown or illustrated through us. We believe it, we speak it, we illustrate it, manifest it in our life. Stop manifesting your own problems Give your problems to God, grow through them, and start manifesting his grace. Stop manifesting your opinion, literally wearing your opinion on your shoulder, and start manifesting the truth of God's word. Stop manifesting your anger and manifest his love. Stop manifesting the culture's view of justice and manifest and illustrate God's view of justice. Let the world see what it's like to be a Christian. Let the world hear as you speak in verse 14 and 15 what it's like to be a Christian. But it must start with what you believe. Christian, if we are going to die daily, what are we dying for? You say, well, I die for my family daily. I get that, but it's not enough. First and foremost, we must die for God and his truth daily. And then, second greatest commandment, then love others and be willing to die for them daily. You say, well, I would be willing to die for them. Are you willing to live for them a a life of dying daily as you live for them? That's real sacrifice. Live courageous. Stop hiding in the shadows. Stop saying, I believe, but I don't want to tell anyone. I believe, but I don't want to show anyone. I believe, but I don't really believe, so I don't want to die daily. Hey, if you believe it, let's see it. If you believe it, let's hear it. And let's not be afraid of what the world says. The world needs to be afraid of what they see in this church. Not afraid that we'll attack them, but afraid that our love will prove them wrong. Afraid that our truth is held so tightly in our hearts that we don't just say it, we live it. And by living and by speaking our, the, the truth of God's word, the truth we believe, as it contradicts their truth, they'll say, well, they can't both be true. Who's right? And it will cause them, it will require them to be confronted with the decision. But when Christians speak the truth and don't live the truth, there's no need for the community to be confronted with their own truth. Let's force the world to recognize there are two sides, and you've got to choose. We're not on the side of Satan, and Satan is surely not on the side of God and his church. Christian, until you can be willing to die daily, you're likely just still practicing. That would be a shame to spend your whole life practicing and never play the game. When's your game going to be when it really matters? Number three, the Christian sacrifice. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. So we've talked about this, verse 15, the apostle Paul stating, I suffer 
so you don't have to, so that you can grow and have a chance to grow, so that as you grow and God's grace comes on you and God's grace comes on me, you'll worship and be thankful to God as you lift him up. And as you do that, God lifted up, the world turns to him. Letter A, God offers grace for those who offer sacrifice. The Apostle Paul says, for your sakes, for your sakes, I suffer, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. God says, I will offer grace to those who die daily. And the Apostle Paul is the example. Jesus Christ is the example. David was an example. Job was an example. So many examples. Men and women both who said, life's not about me. I'll suffer for God. I'll suffer for God if it will increase his kingdom. God says, great, I'm not going to eliminate the suffering. You just volunteered for it. But I will give you grace through the suffering. You will not be alone. You will not be defeated. You will not be trapped. I'll be there with you, guiding and directing through the suffering. Letter B. God may allow the body to suffer, but he desires our soul to prosper. I am not going to tell you that God promises health to Christians who serve. I'm not going to promise you that God will take away all the physical pain if you love him. Again, I will tell you, it seems to me, those who loved God most suffered most in the Bible. God did not eliminate their illnesses. The Apostle Paul prayed three times for some type of condition to be taken away, whether it was an illness or or something that might have been a speech impediment. I don't know. The Apostle Paul says, though, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. No, I'm not eliminating the suffering, but I'll give you grace through the suffering. God allows us to suffer, but God does not want our soul to despair. God does not want our soul to be crushed. In verse 16, For which cause we faint not. He says the cause of Christ, the cause of Christ's kingdom, the cause of others having life and finding eternal life and coming to God, for that cause I will not give up. For that cause I will not faint. But through our outward man perish, though though our outward man perish, though my, my body suffers, though my body's in pain, my back hurts, I have migraine headaches, I am going through cancer treatments, my body is literally falling apart before my very eyes, he says, I will not stop. My body may not be able to move forward, but my soul is moving forward. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. The inward man, that's a promise God gives you. God does not promise outward physical health. God promises inward spiritual renewal. And what matters more? You got two people, one with a healthy physical body, but their soul is in deep despair. And you got one whose body is falling apart, but their soul is refreshed and renewed, has hope and peace every day. Which would you rather have? I'm taking this one. And let her see, and we're done. Eternal glory with Christ overshadows all temporary suffering for Christ. Verse 17, for our light affliction. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who had been shipwrecked multiple times, who had been stoned, left for dead, attacked by his fellow Jews and Gentiles alike, who had been imprisoned wrongfully, who riots had tried to kill the guy on multiple occasions. He says, my affliction really wasn't that bad. Oh, come on, man. Now you're just boasting. No, he's saying 
compared to the glory of heaven, what I'm going through isn't that big of a deal. In comparison to eternal life, this mortal life, it can't get so bad that it's ever going to overshadow the glories of heaven. No, eternal life, eternal glory, that overshadows all suffering. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, eternal. How can someone go through so much suffering like Paul and say it's just light affliction? Because Paul's eyes were not on the affliction. Paul accepted the tribulation. He says, I accept it daily for your sakes, and it's not a big deal because compared to heaven, compared to where I'm going, that's awesome. And the awesomeness of heaven far outshadows the issues of this life. But Christian, when you're living for this life, even the smallest pain hurts. Even the smallest suffering causes you to jump from the altar. But when your eyes are on God and eternal life, you too can get on that altar and die daily and say, although I am persecuted, I'm not alone. You can say, verses 8 and 9, although I am troubled, I'm not trapped, I'm not distressed. Although I am perplexed, I am confused, I am not without hope, I'm not helpless. Although I am persecuted, I'm not alone. And although I fall down, even beat down, I won't stay down. I'm getting back up. Because my motivation is God and his kingdom. Let's pray.